As populations grow, the necessity for sustenance has resulted in elevated extraction and often extinction of natural resources that play a critical role in the symbiotic relationships that keep this planet viable for life. Solutions to this dilemma rely on humans who dedicate themselves to understanding the ebb and flow of specific ecosystems and implementing techniques that replicate nature without changing it. John Brawley has spent his life dedicated to studying the interplay between water and land, finding respite in the estuaries that create balance on our planet, both aquatic and terrestrial. Today on Cocina Pirata Podcast, John joins me to discuss the role these sacred zones play in our existence, the origins of life, and how we can create a world where mutual aid takes precedent over profit. Contra la muerte, nosotros demandamos vida. Contra el silencio, exigimos la palabra y el respeto. Contra el olvido, la memoria. Contra la humillación y el desprecio, la dignidad. Contra la opresión, la rebeldía. Contra la esclavitud, la libertad. Contra la imposición, la democracia. Y contra el crimen, la justicia. <laughs> so, yeah, essentially... Um, yeah, during COVID, it was just a way to talk to people. And I have a lot of interesting friends, you know? And mm -hmm. now I've made friends with people like you. So, um, of course, yeah. I, I, think a, I think a good way to start actually is because I know a little bit about what you've done, but <clears throat> um, pre, uh, so you owned an oyster farm, pre-oyster farm. John is a, as a young man, how did you, how did you, how did you find yourself on the path of, of taking care of water and ecosystems? Are you implying I'm old now? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. I mean, I even think uh, that I'm old. I'm 37, turning yeah. 38. Yeah. <laughs> Just a couple of years younger than I am. Be, prior to the oyster farm in Duxbury, that I'm sure we'll, maybe we'll talk a little bit about uh, Duxbury, Massachusetts, I was a marine scientist primarily. And I, um, my background is marine, it's called systems ecology, a study of ecosystems. And most of my focus was on uh, on shallow estuaries, primarily in New England, but around the world. And the focus, the sub-focus of that, or the closer focus, was on uh, system metabolism, basically photosynthesis, carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, other uh, nutrients, and how they cycle through these systems through different trophic levels and uh, how they interact over time and under different conditions. But prior to that, my interest in, in the water really was growing up in Long Island Sound. Uh, my father, Art Brawley, was uh, an editor at Sports Illustrated, the outdoors editor. And he uh, basically uh, designed his job where he could uh, go fishing with a, a sports writer a few times a year at various exotic places around the world. And then um, have those stories come out in, in Sports Illustrated. But we lived on the water, and he, he took me fishing all the time when I was growing up. So I, we lived right, right on Long Island Sound, basically. And, uh, and that's where I, I had a bait company for a while, and I wanted to get into fish and aquaculture. So that's how it all, all happened. When I got into the oysters, it was basically uh, seeing my friends on Duxbury Bay from my office windows at this marine science consulting company and saying, that looks more fun than writing these, uh, these dry reports for the, the EPA and, and so forth. But um, so I, I just jumped into it. Where did you go to school? Uh, you mean college? college? Yeah. Well, I went here at UVM uh, undergrad. 
uh, uh, graduated in 88. And then uh, after a few years, went uh, to Boston University to get a master's degree in basically environmental studies, environmental sciences, where I studied hydrogeology and coastal systems. You know, how the groundwater uh, goes from, uh, you know, how water goes from land into receiving waters, estuaries. And then after a couple more years, I went to get a PhD down at University of Maryland at the uh, at one of the laboratories uh, on Chesapeake Bay called the Chesapeake Biological Lab. Crazy. Yeah. And Chesapeake Bay, so I, the cool thing is <clears throat> the research that you did, I'm doing research in, 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 and I'm not sure how many people really understand the function of the earth as a whole. You know, I think that a lot of people think the ocean and or and or bodies of water are two different things like that we can we can pollute water for example but they don't understand that we can also regenerate water systems by taking care of what was you know natural to those water systems um and uh and was it a like at what moment did you find out about that coexistence or or that symbiotic relationship. And was that like, a, at, at that point when you found out about that, was that like a drive in your career? Like, oh, this is really where I want to focus on is like how these two things intermingle. Is it a natural, pro is it a natural progression for people that, that, that research oceanography or, 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 or so ocean sciences? Yeah, I get that. The, the interesting thing, when I went to uh, Boston University, I worked on a project. The first project I worked on in graduate school was called the Land Margin Ecosystem Research Project, and and basically it was it was the study of that interconnectedness between uh, land and and water, and the, that the process of one affecting the other, and, and vice versa. Is that what you're? you're yeah, yeah, doing yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And so it was along the land margin. So it was along what we call the um, the seepage phase of, uh, you know, the tidal zone, intertidal zone between, this is in Cape Cod where there's a lot of groundwater coming out into the estuaries, uh, how that affects the, the life in the ecosystems in the water in these estuaries and how then that affects the human communities that live along the water, uh, whether they're positive feedbacks or negative. So that was, that was my introduction to looking at them as a, as a connected uh, system. Yeah. 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 Because essentially for, for people who may be listening, who don't understand that, um, I can give like, uh, I can give like the, the, my basic understanding is that, and, and I guess the cool thing is that the UN into oysters, which are like a very important play, a very important role in this entire system, right. Which we've lost a lot of, which is part of the reason why we have a lot of problems in the ocean and estuaries in general, um, is that, historically before humans nutrients were fed through these estuaries into the ocean and the mitigation was this the life that existed in estuaries essentially correct right yeah i mean so it's all an input output kind of scheme here and the it, when we talk about car uh, carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere and climate change it's the same thing with nutrients in the oceans it's uh they were historically in, in somewhat of a balance in terms of like, the, you know, nutrients would come out of the rainwater, go through the soils. The soils would also be releasing in a pristine condition to groundwater and surface water going to the uh, coastal zone. Uh, and, but there was a, a fairly consist, consistent balance there. And as humans 
started doing, you know, using land for agriculture, golf courses, and uh, wastewater that just subsidized the, the flow of nutrients into the receiving waters, which changes it, turns the, pushes these ecosystems into a different stable states, yep. alternative stable states that then, then people will notice that there's a lot of seaweed, there aren't as many fish, the, the water's murky, yeah. uh, and then they have to build uh, sewage treatment plants after the fact, of course, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah. no, we have a problem. We have to build a, a plant to reduce the nutrients, but we've already built all these houses, so it's very expensive. So it's also a lesson. The third uh, you know, leg of the chair here is uh, that about human behavior and social science and how we, we tend to do things until there's a, a problem and we react and then <laughs> have to make you know, tax more people to get more money to, to remedy the, the situation. Yeah, or at least pretend that we're using that tax, that tax, those tax dollars to to remedy the issue. I suppose so. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and, and how much in your mind now, like you know, being deep, we're getting like super early on, super deep into the science of things, yeah, which no. I, I like and I enjoy. Just but, tell um, jokes for a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how much of a, I'm sure we'll get there. Um, how much of how much of um, how much of it, so you talked about like, you know, humans, you talked about the input being an issue. Um, I know that extraction was also part of the issue, right? Like what we're extracting from those estuaries when it comes to mollusks, for example, that act as, as, as filtration, how much of extraction plays a role? Like let's say we had never touched oysters or never taken from the estuaries. Are we at a point where the inputs are too high regardless? Like, like, would nature correct itself? Well, I think it's, there's a lot of variability from system to system, from estuary to estuary, coastal body among them. Um, You know, well, we're talking about shellfish, first of all. Yeah, they are very important for uh, maintaining the clarity of of water so that light can penetrate down to the the seafloor and can... Um, uh, can be available for submerged vegetation like grasses and things like that, and that's that's an indicator of a healthy coastal system. Uh, they they trap uh, sediment that's in the water in addition to the food that they're eating, which is phytoplankton primarily, little single cell al- algal cells, little plants that grow. They're microscopic. They're what turn the water green sometimes, um, but. It depends. I mean, exploitation of, of estuaries varies over, you know, how the proximity to cities and towns and all that. Uh, what, what has happened in New England, especially, and, and around the rest of, well, around the world is, you know, aquaculture, uh, bringing shellfish in is typically not disturbing the, the, the existing ecosystems, and you're enhancing uh, the, the, the systems by... Um, just putting them in place, letting them grow for, let's say, a couple of years, and then pulling them out and replacing them with new ones. And uh, it's a very sustainable approach to farming. Yeah. Farming the edge of the but sea. I guess, but I guess free. So I read a book. I'm going to, I'm probably going to fuck the name. It's called Fishing a History of Humankind. Yeah. 
I think is the name of the book. I'll look it up after and, and show it to you. But essentially, it, it, the, the the prose of the book was that like before, uh, a that the the ecological issues that we face in 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 industrial fishing actually started, you know, kind of thousands of years ago when when humans first started fishing. It actually stated that that before hunter gatherers, we were tidewater foragers and gatherers. Which there's some like hist- building weirs and in, yeah, in, in yeah, tidal yeah. zones, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and taking, you know, taking, you know, living off, uh, living off uh, shellfish and and other things. Which is uh, also in the book they talk about how one of the theories that they talk about is that that's actually how the human brain grew so rapidly. Um, Does that mean my brain's bigger now because I've been eating a lot of oysters? Yeah, and, for sure. Apparently, right? <laughs> DHA, you're you're getting you're getting flush with it. Um, but anyways, you know, there were some stories of colonizers coming into the Chesapeake Bay and describing the water in the, because the Chesapeake Bay actually was super, it has been super affected, right? Like, so the, the stories right. that I've, you know, these captain's logs from settlers coming over, the first people coming um, into the United States said uh, there was one specific description that the, the water looked like chain mail with the heads of fish poking above the wall. Like that's how, how abundant it was. And there was all mm-hmm. of this talk at that time of, of, um, of, uh, <clears throat> um, I mean, a lot of people were coming here to fish, right. And still right. do like, like people were coming here to fish and take it back to Europe or whatever it was. Um, but I, I guess, you know, extraction happened more now. I think that farming, um, the farming that you're talking about, at least in, in the Northeast, it seems like it's been pretty well maintained for a long period of time, but in places like that, it's kind of just, it also reached that same point. It was like extracting to the point that they realized that they needed to find a solution to the problem and then, and then, and then started to throw solutions in. Um, I mean, I guess there's probably not a chance of regeneration in the Chesapeake Bay. I did hear about, he does talk about uh, specifically, and I'm not sure if in Rowan's book he talks about this, but um, you know, spraying oyster shells into the into the ocean from a boat, for example, is one of the things that they use to try to like repopulate right. um, these colonies. But uh, is there a way to for a place like Chesapeake Bay to 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 go back to a state in which it was before? Well, there's a lot of effort going into that. Um, and when I was when I was at school there uh, in Southern Maryland, that was back in the mid '90s. Um, there were there were a lot of um, there was a lot of interest and a lot of activity going into planning how to um, basically uh, restore Chesapeake Bay to a more productive, you know, a more productive uh, state, like historically, um, and get eelgrass back in there and more more fish and more crabs and everything. Basically, it's just totally eutrophied, and, and eutrophication is uh, for the listeners out there. It's uh, the increase in the production of organic matter. It's it's basically over fertilizing or over enriching water. Uh, just like you would if you put fertilizer on your lawn, it becomes green and lush. Put it in the water, it becomes its own form of green and lush. And that oxygen, uh, that that material uh, creates um, more food for back for microbi- uh, microbes to then feed on, consuming oxygen, clouding the water up. So it basically putrefies the water to some extent. Um, there's a lot of effort in reducing nutrients going into Chesapeake Bay. Uh, it's a huge task, but to answer your question more directly, uh, restoring shellfish communities like oysters and whatever else, clams, which will enhance the the improvement of water quality. Uh, 
I think can be done. It, they do that. What you're describing from Rowan's book is called uh, spreading culch out, and that's oyster shell and culch, C U L C H T C H. Yeah, culch. Um, that's form. That's just providing substrate rather than just mud, so that the oysters, when they're reproducing, have something to to set on to build a home on. When it's all murky and muddy from all this uh, uh, algal material, like organic matter and silt, uh, they 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 won't uh, take. They won't take there. Um, let's see. The, just the practice of farming shellfish. I know we're t- we, you want to talk about probably fin fish too regular fish yeah but. yeah uh, but i'm also interested in I, you're gonna say something about shellfish and i would lo- we will definitely talk about shellfish yeah. but there's also a piece that i missed until very recently that you touched on and till i met a friend of mine james um he owns a company called Seatopia. i think i told you about it they do uh regener- regeneratively farmed aquaculture boxes of fish yep and so what he's seeking is not just people looking at singular solutions but kind of creating an eco uh an ecosystem right and yep. so like the you said eelgrass i'm sure kelp is another one of those things what role did those I, I and i don't even really understand this but like what role does something like eelgrass or kelp play in the ecosystem of an estuary or the ocean at large yeah multiple roles uh let's see uh first of all they f- they provide habitat so they have a three-dimensional often vertical structure that provides uh, surface area and substrate for other animals and other animals to live in and hide in. It's called refugia, where uh, larval fish, for example, will have a, a place to, to hang out and not be seen by predators. Um, and they produce a substrate for things to grow on them, other, other species, uh, symbiotically or not. But uh, they also are there to, they mediate the amount of uh, or, um, silt, for example, that's in the water by slowing water down. Uh, okay. And then uh, heavy particles will then drift down by gravity in between their fronds, and they'll take the nutrients that are, that are coming from that and turning, will turn that into biomass and, and grow. So it's a, it's a circular um, biological process of trapping uh, sediments using the nutrients there and then having substrate and then basically pr- uh, providing substrate for other animals uh, to, to live in and thrive. And at large, like I assume that they also absorb carbon. Yes. Uh, although the carbon just doesn't go away, you know, into the air there. It's turned into basically turning carbon dioxide that's in the water column dissolved into, uh, into, car- into organic matter. And then for example, in the wintertime, salt marshes and eelgrass meadows will then um, desiccate, meaning that they'll, they'll die back a bit, senesce, and then that material will then be exported typically to the ocean, ocean environment where uh, those, those environments don't have a lot of uh, access to nutrients. They have plenty of carbon but, yeah. uh, in most cases, but... Uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and other micronutrients can get, then get exported out. So uh, estuaries that have salt marshes and eelgrass beds, uh, they, they tend to serve a, a benefit to downstream the, when they export that material in the fall and winter to uh, open water where it's, it's used and, and recycled. It's crazy. 
Yeah. It's crazy. Is, is any of that, is any of that work? Uh, I, I've seen there's a, like, there's a kelp farm. I, I want to say it's in Maine somewhere or something like that. Is that something that people are focusing on farming? Is, is there a, like outside of its benefit to the nutrients it provides for the ocean and, and, and the mitigation that it provides? Is there a benefit to growing those kinds of things? Is just people working on, on those type of projects? Yeah. Well, the immediate benefit is more like the water they're grown in might have uh, a nutrient problem. There might be too much nitrate or, or for example, a, a form of nitrogen in the water uh, and the kelp farms will absorb that just like the, the oysters will take phytoplankton out of the water column and, and take that portion of the, the nitrogen budget and turn it into biomass. That's what kelp and other seaweed farms uh, have been. Th those are the benefits for the near, near shore waters. And of course they're, they're doing it for, uh, for, uh, to make money so they're, yeah. they're and, and provide services to the community. So they're, um, a lot of the kelp, I think in Maine, uh, I've been hearing more about oyster farmers and clam farmers, but mostly oyster farmers that are including kelp now at their sites. Yeah, it is a, so, it is a, it, like it is a, um, financial gain as well right. because a lot of people are eating kelp now yeah. and using kelp and cooking. Is eelgrass something that you can consume? Uh, yeah, I don't think it will kill you or anything, but I think uh, I don't think it's palatable, really. Yeah. What does it look uh, like? What does eelgrass look like? Um, it looks like, let's see, uh, daffodil, you know, blades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps a little bit thinner. Uh, it can grow up to five or six feet. Crazy. A couple of meters off the off the floor if the water's clear. Uh, typically, it's just like a foot or, or two in length and just meadows, mostly in sandy environments. Yeah. Maybe we need some of that in Lake Champlain. Well, there are grasses here, and I have to admit, I'm not, I'm not a freshwater ecologist, <laughs> <laughs> but there are. Uh, and it's called SAV, submerged aquatic vegetation. And it's, it's, it's typically an indicator of a healthy water body, whether it's freshwater or saltwater, if it exists, and if it's providing uh, ecological benefits to other, other components of the ecosystem. Yeah, it's crazy. So, uh, you know, to flash forward to your project here, you're growing shrimp inside in a closed loop, essentially a closed loop system, right? Right. Um, and my uh, perspective has changed significantly. I, like from being a chef in, in Los Angeles who worked with, I don't know if you've heard of Michael Simaristi. He has a, he, he has a, a restaurant called Providence um, and they're a, a fish forward restaurant. It's a Michelin star restaurant there. Sorry, Michael, I, I have... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so he started a project when I was in Los Angeles called Doc to Dish. Yeah. And essentially it was an app. They would, you know, on Monday you'd get a, a message. The fishermen are out for these fish. You may or may not get them, get your order in. And then he started an application where you could actually see uh, the boat in the water and it would come straight from the docks in Santa Bar Barbara directly to the restaurant. He's a, like a hyper advocate for wild caught only. Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of unwilling to listen to the conversation about why farming can be farming fish can be beneficial. Um, because I think historically farming fish, like there was several, there was several problems. And I think the one that he at least, and many people who didn't know a ton about farming fish. It was always like a fish for fish, right? Like how many fish are we using, you know, in meal, fish meal or whatever. And then obviously waste mitigation and all those types of things. Um, and so it wasn't until very recently, well, you know, and maybe, maybe five years ago, I met my friend 
James that I was telling you about, and he started to enlighten me about the 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 processes necessary to farm. And one of the big one of the he's an advocate for out of as much as possible, especially with something like shrimp. Um, that farming shrimp out of water is the really in his mind the only solution. Um, and because it's a pretty dirty game, right? Like like farming fish, farming shrimp specifically can be can be pretty toxic. Yeah, it's all over the place. Uh, you know, ninety five percent, nearly ninety five percent of the shrimp that we consume here domestically comes from uh, abroad. It comes from Asia, South America, India, and those those origins are reported to be varied in quality and and in, not in terms of just quality of the the product the shrimp but the quality of the water they're grown in and the way that they're grown and what they've replaced to do to to do that and it basically to have a, a shrimp farm in the tropics is you take a mangrove estuary and excavate it and turn it you know, build big ponds and draw water in from the nearby river grow the shrimp as much as you can and then pump the water back out. Uh, grow as much as you can until they either, there's disease that's um, you know endemic there or uh, it silts in and you gotta let it rest. But anyway, they're, they're, the conditions vary around the world. Um, the, the domestic supply in the US, that remaining 5%, about half of that is wild cotton, half is now as the industry grows is being grown in these recirculating you know, aquaculture systems, RAS systems, or along the coast of Texas and Florida and places like that where they can draw water in and then um, you know, have it go back out, surface water meaning you know, from yeah. the ocean. But uh, it's growing as an industry. Uh, so it's uh, Michael says, is that your friend's name? Who, James, James. James, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Michael's the other one. Um, <laughs> yeah. That... The, that is the that's the answer to the future of specifically it, yeah is is shrimp. like like shrimp farming in general because like just in talking about that just in in your brief description essentially even the ones that are uh, the farms that are you know on the coast for mm -hmm. example or in estuaries are growing until there's an issue like a, a somewhat biological issue mm -hmm. and then flushing essentially that issue back into the ocean, right? Yeah, disease control is a, is a problem in many parts of the world where the waters are, are, are basically, they're so prox proximate that they're, the water's being shared. And so if you have a disease outbreak, uh, typically uh, what would happen is um, you would quarantine your farm, take care of it. But when all these farms are, are clustered together, like they are in, in certain parts of the world, the, the water moves around and, and disease will spread. And you can see wide, widespread uh, you know, cataclysmic declines in productivity. Yeah, and in, in, in the, local, uh, the localized ecosystem, I imagine, as well. Oh, and that's already shot. You know, the, uh, intensive farming along the coast, basically you convert that ecosystem from its natural state into something, into a farm, just like in uh, terrestrial farms. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's no more forest. There's just a big field there now. Yeah, it's I had different. the I had a really <clears throat> I had a really interesting opportunity to see. There's there's a place I lived in Puerto Escondido, Oaxaca, and there's a really interesting place there called Chicawa, and it's uh, it's a mangrove, and 
there's a really beautiful place on the on the on the coast like where where the where the tide water meets the the um the entrance to the mangrove everybody goes there cuz it's absolutely gorgeous and there's a cool surf break but essentially you meet up in this little town there, there's a, a fishing community there that's still that's lived there historically um in the mangroves actually and there's one road that accesses um but it's very hard to to get there by road. So mostly what people do is they go to a place called uh, Zapatolito, which is like a little town and you pay a guy money and you get on a boat. And these are people that live on this, you know, they know it. Mm-hmm. And you hammer out through the the mangroves. And um, it's kind of funny because <laughs> I described it as like the, the first time I went there, we just took a little bit of LSD before we went out there. And so was, why, why just a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it was a little bit more than a little bit, but I described it as like, so, so when you're in this like wide open pond before you actually get into the, which is part of the, the ecosystem there, right? It's just like dirt, like it looks dirty, super d- dark, dirty water, right? There's a ton of birds there, ton of life, it's hot. And you hammer into what looks like just trees, but these guys know it so well. There's like a little path cut out in the mangroves that you hammer in through when you get into the mangroves, it's like the loudest noise. It's, I, it's what I imagine the jungle to like, like a deep Amazonian jungle to sound like. Mm-hmm. And so every time we went, we did this and it was like the kind of the, 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 the healing journey of going through this like dark, sweaty, scary forest. And when you come out at the end where the tide comes in, it's just as gorgeous. Looks like you're, you're in Jurassic park. Um, but I, it's, it's one of the untouched, um, mangroves that exist there on the coast and it's really gorgeous when you come back at night um so the 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 um why am i drawing a blank on this uh the bioluminescence there are are absolutely wild Mm -hmm. which is also crazy when you're on lsd yeah (laughs) but uh um at night so so when you're going through the mangroves you see like just little cutouts and if you look in the cutouts it's like their driveway to their house and Mm -hmm. then their house is like inside the mangrove Mm -hmm. and at night they come out and dug out boats and they and they fish with nets by disturbing the water and seeing the shrimp move and then throwing the net. Right. Um, and so that ecosystem is still thriving. Um, but those are the places that you say that are kind of getting exploited, right? Like, is there a specific reason why they choose those environments? Just because that's that's true. And I guess I'm already thinking of of like drawing this back visually in my head because the water that you use, what the the, and I'll let you explain what bioflock is. The water that you use looks like that that mm-hmm. that mangrove water. So is there a reason specifically why those environments are important um, for the growth of shrimp? Well, I think first of all, I think those environments are the natural environment uh, where they they spend at least parts parts of their lives the, the shrimp. Obviously, you know, they're there. Um, what can I say about that? You know, shrimp farming or any any kind of aquaculture, where it's located typically has to do with the how close it is to the, the natural condition or the, the environment anyway. You know, it, it costs a lot of money to heat water and to pump it around a lot. Uh, if you can get really cheap real estate, relatively inexpensive real estate, I should say, uh, along the coast, in a in a somewhere that has power supply, uh, then you can uh, operate a, a farm more effectively or more profitably than if you're, um, you know, somewhere else where it's it's more expensive for a variety of reasons. Like the energy costs are too high, or the the real estate's too high. 
uh, where it's less practical. So I think that in the cases like what you're describing, uh, they just happen to be like optimal locations to to grow and shrimp these, or tilapia or whatever is what, what would grow in those environments. Yeah, I guess what I'm I guess what I'm what I was leaning towards is like what is that soup? Oh, made I got of? it all wrong here. No, uh, no, no, you didn't get it wrong. That, that was also an explanation <laughs> because there, this is like such a. I know that there's like like so many trophic levels to this and that, yeah. that like, you know, specifically mangroves are are great for all types of growth for the same reason that eelgrass, right? Because yep. a mangrove is like, I can't even imagine what it looks like underneath that water. You know what I mean? There's those, tons of places for, for fish to hide, yep. for things to reproduce, for things to grow. Um, and then, you know, bioluminescence specifically, I think is something that a lot of people have seen, especially if they've been on- LSD. <laughs> yeah. dude i gotta sidebar this story because so this guy his name was jesus like it wasn't his real name but this was the name that 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 everybody called him there and so we're we're coming back like kind of coming down you know and and, and I, the the power of i had seen bioluminescence in in um in puerto rico in this little bay that we kayaked in it was pretty wide open there it was like like a hundredfold and this dude's life is taking people out and because you watch sunset and it was one of the most beautiful experiences just feeling that tide water come in and seeing the exchange of water between you know an estuary and the ocean the whole thing was was gorgeous but coming back in we're like coming down kind of but like still seeing things wildly and i just remember being on the front of the boat watching the boat rip in the front and seeing the colors and then looking back and he's there with his outboard boat motor, like just neon waves coming off the back. And I had this moment to think like this, we told him to stop then in the, in the middle to have a conversation with him, to ask him what his life is about. Cause imagine that like, you know, that to that dude, it's normal. Kind of. Mm-hmm. He did tell me that he like goes out there sometimes when him and his wife are in a fight and just like hides and like, and, like <laughs> enjoys nature. Right. But I wanted yeah. to have a conversation with this dude about like whether or not this was powerful to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that we all have, uh, this is the esoteric sidebar. I think that we all have, uh, for me there, like for him, what he explained was that it wasn't really like, he didn't really see magic in it. You know what I mean? And I think that's a misstep that we took when we started extracting things from the earth. I think that when you're around, it's like Vermont growing up here, it's like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Like I took it, took it for granted. Right. Yeah. Um, and surprisingly he didn't see, not, I guess unsurprisingly now that I think about it, but he also didn't see it as like this really incredible thing. He just saw it as this thing that, that exists there. That's normal. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, but I just remember thinking the sidebar was that I just remember thinking with this, like this dude lives in like a fucking Willie Nelson album cover. So you know what I mean? <laughs> like you could just see the dude, the fucking rock music playing yeah. in the background with the neon waves shooting out the yeah. side. And so I guess to go back to the, to, to what we were talking about is all of that, that nutrient pool that happens there. Um, and I'm not even really sure what bioluminescence specifically is there for or what it does. Um, but what, what is that makeup? And like, why is that important? Because that's, similar to what you have in your, in your, in your pools, correct? Yeah. I don't have bio, bioluminescence, <laughs> unfortunately. Start growing that shit. Do some bioluminescent <laughs> well, tours. Well, just to add to your sidebar, um, the bioluminescence for those who may not know what, have heard of it, but don't really know what it is. It's, it's these, um, it's mostly gelatinous. It's called gelatinous zooplankton or gel- <laughs> jellyfish or little tinafores or little 
little animals that live in the water uh, that when disturbed will, like a firefly, uh, release this light. Uh, usually it's kind of a greenish, yeah. uh, whatever, white, whitish green light, sometimes blue. Yeah. And in, it's blue there. in the area yeah, where you were and in, in warmer environments in the summer, even if you go to Cape Cod or Nantucket, you'll see in, in this time of year uh, when the water's nice, really warm, you know, these gelatinous uh, animals are in high densities. And if you throw a rock in the water, like skim some, some rocks, uh, you'll see them at night, you know, like yeah, light yeah, up. Yeah. Uh, and when you're on the boat, you'll see it in the wake of uh, anything that disturbs the water. And when the fish move around, if you catch a fish at night, you can see where the, the fish is all the time because it's glowing. It's disturbing all these little animals and leaving a, a trace in the water, which is amazing. But I don't have that. I just have what you said earlier was bioflock, kind of a kind of a murky brown water where the shrimp grow in. Yeah, because that's what it looks like during the day when you're there. When you're yeah. there during the day, it's like, first of all, I, there was like no, you kept, at night they were like, my friend jumped in the water. I was like, fuck that shit. There's crocodiles around. There. Like, I don't <laughs> not want to get in this water because it's so dark. And I think that most people, when they go look at it, it's like, it looks like dirty water. Yeah. What What is that? I, I know enough about what what bioflock is to kind of have a loose understanding, but like what specifically is in that water and and, and why is it important to the growth of shrimp specifically? Yeah, so, well, first of all, the, the murkiness of the water in the wild, in, in a natural environment, is just, it's, it's probably because it's relatively shallow. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of organic matter, you know, decaying plant material and whatever in, in the water that gets stirred up from wind and tides and all that. So that's, and that's just a natural environment. The uh, shrimp, and some fish can be grown either in what's called a clear water system or a, or a bioflock system or somewhere in between. And all bioflock is, is what it means is that it's flocculates or, or particles that um, contain uh, bio, uh, biological uh, communities. Or uh, Think of it as uh, organic matter like feed that has been uh, uneaten or uh, the, waste, the solid waste from the shrimp in the water itself, breaking down a lot of bacterial, a lot of types of bacteria will be working on that and other little animals and things, uh, microscopic uh, animals. And that material forms a substrate, a surface area for the bacteria that are responsible for converting toxic forms of waste into non-toxic forms of waste or tolerable forms. And specifically that's uh, the, the shrimp will excrete ammonia through, from their gills. That's, that's what fish do. Um, yeah. Ammonia, it's, it's a nitrogen, it's nitrogen, it's NH4. And it's it's fairly toxic to to marine and, and aquatic animals at low concentrations. So there are these bacteria that specialize, uh, they're called nitrifiers, in converting that ammonia, that NH4, uh, through a, a couple of different processes, but it'll ultimately convert that into nitrate, which is NO3, nitrogen, one nitrogen, three oxygens. And that nitrate is tolerable to marine life at much higher concentrations. And uh, the the reason that I grow shrimp and bioflock is to have that, it's, a, it's one method to just not have a big filtration system and use a lot of power to run water all the time through a, a mechanical filter to get the solids out and to make it clear. Uh, it's it's keeping some of that solid 
um, waste material in the water to denitri to nitrify the ammonia or the ammonium once in the water uh, to nitrate, and also it forms a they'll actually graze on that and feed it feed on it. So there's some recycling happening. The the protein that the bacteria create in the water are uh, preyed upon by the the shrimp. So about 20% of their diet, I'm estimating, comes from what's recycled in the water itself, not from the external feed. That's so wild. In your in your and I did I, I, I you just explained it much better than I had understood it before. But like uh, as far as what they end up consuming in the end. Um, in your understanding, is there any other any other um, ecological mirror to that in 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 the world, like to that process of 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 something eating or processing <clears throat> excrement or waste into viable feed or something else that mitigates waste? Yeah, well, that's happening all the time. If you go to any any estuary around the world where you see murky water, that's all plant animal waste that's being recycled all the time continuously. And that so this nitrification and then also denitrification, which takes care of the nitrate levels when that gets high, happens in the sediments that um without oxygen. Uh that's happening all the time. This so basically what I'm doing is mim mimicking the natural world in these three thousand gallon tanks that I built. And is there any other spe species that can live off or I guess more so I was asking like if, if there's other species that exist in the same manner in the water like like is there other fish or shellfish or 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 crustacean that can live in the same manner um there are a few fish species and uh tilapia is a good example can everybody tolerate fish the yeah. most flavorful fish yeah well they're <laughs> they have a bad name but they're they are good fish yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. uh they're, they're it's a good source of protein the um and they're actually also incredibly powerful when we're talking about like eco being ecologically sound, right? There's right. a lot of things that they can do. Right. Yeah. I mean, tilapia are always rooting around the, the sediments in, in mangrove estuaries or, or freshwater systems like that or like that and turning, you know, it's called bioturbation. They're, they're digging around and, and allowing more allowing more uh, oxygen to go into the sediments and they they eat everything too but tilapia so the thing about bioflock systems it's it's high concentrations of solids in the water a lot of species aren't tolerant to that the 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 material gets stuck in their gills they can't see they can't function they're not they haven't evolved to to that kind of condition so it's limited to just the species that can live and typically you have oxygen uh, depletion with a lot of organic matter. So low oxygen, dissolved oxygen concentrations in the water, high organic matter, shrimp do well, tilapia do well. They do actually better. Catfish? Catfish, yep. Because there's also catfish there in the in the mangroves. Yeah, yeah but you couldn't grow a, a rainbow trout in, in bioflock yeah. because they, they just can't survive in that, that environment. Do you think that's where we came from, estuaries? I just threw you out the super. I just threw out the super super life question. Like we we crawled out and uh, evolved into. I mean, I think I, yeah. I like to imagine. A, <laughs> Don't I, you know that the spaceships came or the comet uh, <laughs> impregnated the Earth with? Uh, I thought you were going to start talking about. The, I thought you were going to start talking about the bearded guy. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, you mean uh, God? Yeah. Oh, 
the the that guy in the sky. Um, but he loves you. Yeah, he does. <laughs> I mean, I'm just gonna keep saying that. I've always had the thought I was like, if I don't embrace religion, I'll just when I'm about to die, I'll just you know repent because apparently in the Bible, if you just repent at some point in your life, you're going to heaven. Right. You don't um, go to purgatory when it, you could just like snap your fingers and say, I'm sorry. I don't really know that I would be unhappy in purgatory. Like, I, like uh, honestly, you know, the way, the way the world is going, the way life is going. This is purgatory. Yeah, it, it absolutely <laughs> is. And just in general, if, if there is any consciousness after life, I'll be happy. I mean, I don't really like the heat. So if that is a real thing mm -hmm. that you're in like the fiery gates of hell, I might have to find a new way to live, but I'm sure I can well, survive. I, I feel that that was all made up to uh, tell, <laughs> tell stories to people to make them do things. But. Oh yeah. I'm pretty sure that was the original form of yeah. the government. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a table of books from PM Press here that, that, that we can break into after the fact and sure. discuss that. Um, no, but I like to have this. I don't know if it's, this was just, you know, like I am... As, as a cook, I've always been profoundly interested in, um, maybe that's what made me a, an atheist. I don't know if atheist is the right word. I don't know. But anyways, maybe that's what made me not believe. It was just like, I've always been profoundly interested in the, in, 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 in the living aspect of what we consume. Like whether mm -hmm. it, even, even on a plant level, right? I've always been really intrigued. I remember working at Lunig's as a very young kid we'd get these fucking boxes of i knew what a chicken was i grew up around here on farms but there everybody wanted wants chicken breast so we get these boxes of just like disgusting tri plastic trays with chicken breast and you had to like wash the slime off yeah so i always remember being like there's no there's there's no just it didn't feel like a thing to me and so you were, i mean connected yeah yeah connected. to what it was yeah yeah and and so i guess as i as i pondered that throughout my life i've always had this this you know as i've as i've picked little pieces of science up you know mm -hmm. like as i read as much as i can when you're focused on one thing it's hard to pick up all of the things right when i'm focused on cooking food or the functionality or the science behind that i like to do as much research as possible and as i get older i can you know start to digest more and understand more um but i just always have this uh, for some reason all, uh, the amalgamation of scientific knowledge that I've gathered or understanding, I shouldn't say knowledge, I should say understanding that I've gathered over the years. I just have this image that at some point in time, we were just little single celled microorganisms that crawled up on the shore and found a way to, 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 to survive. Because I think um, the more I've understood what you what we've been talking about now for the past 40 minutes of an estuary playing this really incredible role between the land and the sea and 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 really connecting those two things um i really firmly believe that that's where life came from i mean i think that scientifically it's thought of in a similar fashion mm -hmm. what do you think those first days looked like <laughs> What is what is here's your, here's like, John to tell you about the origin of life? <laughs> no, I mean, what's it, but like, I don't what's, know. you know what I'm saying? Like, don't don't you have? I mean, haven't you pontificated about this in, yeah. in your years of like with all of the knowledge that sure. you have, which is much more than I do? Like, what do you think that that looked like? Whether or not it's reality. Well, I've read the same things that you've probably read and about <laughs> it. Uh, inside, what here. I, I feel that life, there's a propensity to move forward uh, in life. So whether it's a single cell, the single cell, you know, 
uh, bacteria or or plant cells that have evolved initially, you know, to to then uh, slowly over millions of years, a long, long time before you know multi-celled um, animals and plants, you know, uh, came on, onto the uh, terrestrial uh, realm. I think that there's always been some sort of force, and that that's in the DNA, you know. That's in our junk DNA, what we used to call junk DNA. There, there has to be some sort of memory function uh, of, of what's in the environment that gets passed on. And that, that it, for every species, there's some way to figure out the puzzle a, a little faster than just by random chance all the time. Um, this is not a religious thought or anything like that, but that we're just code. And if you're if you're going to code life, you might as well be a really good code maker and and write really good code that knows like now that we're learning more about AI, about how to uh, keep the species going in per- perpetuity. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, hundred okay. percent. Yeah. So the I used to have discussions with my friend Skip Bennett down at uh, he he owns Island Creek Oysters in in Duxbury, and we'd go down to the Windsor House. Uh, and and have some beers and talk about all the stuff about exactly what we what we're talking right now about right now, and we we were like there has to be some uh, subsidy in our DNA that allows uh, like kind of like epigenetics yeah. to to find the paths that we need to that we all need to as life forms to keep moving whether you're a plant or a bacteria or a bacterium or a, a mammal and um, so I've been interested in that and I've read a few books about this stuff. But I think that uh, there must be, you know, you said you're an atheist, but there must be some sort of, there's no reason like in Rowan who, our friend Rowan, we talk like the, the it's likely that what we don't know is, I mean, it's obviously much greater, but the probability that there is some sort of force of nature that's organized in some fashion yeah. is pretty high. I mean, I, I said an atheist, I don't really like that term because I've definitely had, I definitely believe exactly what you're saying. Like there is for sure something, I mean, it's like a, like a, like a, it doesn't have to be with a substance, but any profound psychedelic experience, I don't think that psychedelic experiences solely come with mind altering substances, whether or not they're natural or, or, or created in a laboratory. Um, I think that you can have a profound psychedelic. I I have, I I walk a lot. I like to walk and not talk to people. And like, maybe I have music on or whatever it is, but I can be walking down the street, even in a city like, you know, in Burlington and look at a tree and see, you know, sacred geometry happening in front of me, because that is really what we see when we go inside in psychedelic experience. There's a big difference between like psychedelic experiences with your eyes open and closed, right? And when they're Mm -hmm. closed, we're essentially seeing the same thing we're seeing in nature, but in color and light and shapes. And I think in those moments, what you're feeling is exactly what you're talking about. This code that exists inside of us Mm -hmm. that we cannot possibly explain. Right. And I think that it's funny because now there's so many people having these conversations and I feel that a lot of people are having these conversations in a way that they think, maybe they don't think, but they put out and even scientists put out in a way that like, that it can be figured out. Mm -hmm. And so 
when I said atheist, I didn't mean. I know. That's I, I, don't I, know like, I know that. No, no, but I do. But I do recognize. This is something I think about. Like, it, it's not that I don't. I, I do believe. A, I believe we can never figure it out. In the same way, you can never know whether or not God really exists until you die. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 B, I think that trying to figure it out is a fool's errand. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know one of the reasons I have like hold people like you in such high esteem is because really what you're doing when you're taking care of life forms and finding not just taking care of life forms for profit, but really taking care of that life form. Because I don't think for you, what you're doing, like I asked this question to a lot of people. I've asked a few people who are, who are very wealthy and, and, and have come up with cool creative ideas that benefit society. I've asked them like, like, uh, whether or not you would do what you're doing if if money was not involved, and surprisingly, the majority of them say no. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure that if money wasn't an issue, and and I and I precursor it with like if money wasn't an issue, would you be doing what you're doing? I feel like at least from from knowing you and talking to you that that you're intrigued by what you do, and you're intrigued by what you do because maybe it is the key to understanding how life should function for you. Right. Yeah. I don't. I see money. I've changed the view I've have on, I've had on money or wealth, whatever, over the years, uh, I see it. And, and you know who recently inspired me to think more about this is Todd Hardy, who founded yeah. Caledonia Spirits. And he, you know, he, we treat money as currency. And as an ecologist, that's what, what like uh, energy is, like stored energy. And you don't want to store it. You don't want to take money and accumulate it. You want to keep moving it through to perform. What it does is it performs work, just like in an ecosystem. Just like photosynthesis creates uh, glucose molecules and plants that can then be used to then that those electrons can then be uh, uh, used uh, with reactions and enzymes and whatever uh, to then drive other to work on other functions of the plant and then to animals. And that's what happens. There's a cascade of, of energy from the sun through uh, all life. Where am I going with this? I, I think money is something that, as in our society, we feel it's a, it's it equates to happiness, and and that you have to accumulate wealth in order to be comfortable and happy. And I think it's just a, a symptom of being insecure. You know, you want to have you know com- you, we're always in uh, most of us as individuals compare ourselves to other people all the time. It's a natural thing that we do. Uh, it's not healthy, though, to let that control your life and to think about um, money to be the the end all. Of course, you don't want to be uh, completely poor and, and despondent, but uh, we're all pretty uh, able to. Most of us can 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 find our way. A lot of people can't, of course, and so now we're getting to this like humanistic thing like yeah, yeah. we have to help each other but what i what i do is i like what the purpose of of my life doing aquaculture is my personal interest and also to provide to grow food for people to have a uh, an experience to have locally produced um good uh food products and to uh shave off a bit of the carbon footprint of of the production of this type of food yeah, yeah. so you're like you know I- what you were saying about money, I, I absolutely agree with, but I think, and you said like, there's some people that can't get by and there's some people that hoard and there's some people that don't like, this is where money becomes, uh, inhumane to me or, 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 or non, I think that you can look at 
human, like the human life form, we are part of ecology, right? Right, and and I think that money could possibly. First of all, I view money as a promissory note. It's a piece of paper that says, "I owe you twenty dollars or whatever it is. Whatever the value is, is created by the product, is created by the supply chain, is created by the quantity of things, the quality of things." Um, but I think where it becomes non ecological, because in an ecological system, if there was a hoarder, for example, you know, a, 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 a wealthy shrimp who is consuming all of the protein created by the bioflock, the rest of the system would probably revolt, right? right? And would probably deal with that situation, We've created a system where money can create money specifically creates um, creates um, s- safety in a different sense. Like you were saying, you were talking about how how it creates safety for people psychologically, but it also creates safety for people um, in 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 the community because if you have enough money, you can protect yourself from the revolt essentially, right? You can build bigger walls, you can buy guns, you can create a military system that supports you, whatever it is. So go to the doctor. So while I do, yeah, exactly. And go to the doctor. So while I do think that, while I do think that money can be something if shared or put back into the system can create opportunity and can be beneficial. I don't know if as conscious in and here's another thing that we that, that that will be interesting to talk about because you work with life forms is that you know we are considered the only really conscious beings but somehow our conscious or like hyper conscious I should say beings but somehow our consciousness has has or or our you know this this system that we're talking about this DNA that we're talking about is slowly editing out um compassion mm-hmm. so so while there are compassionate people, I think that money creates decoding of our compassion in DNA in some people. And so um, that's essentially why I think money, money can't, can't, can't work, you know? And, and maybe that's, we, we've built a society on it. You know what I mean? And we have to, and yes, there is ways that money can help, but I think that it's, I think there's got to be another solution, I guess. Yeah. And the way, again, the way I see it is it, uh, it's currency. So current, like electric current, it, it, it actually creates work. It, it makes things happen. So if you, if you're sitting on a sum of money that you've earned or, or someone gave to you, however you got it, uh, that will influence other people, uh, in such an abstract way too. Like you said, it's just, it's a, it's an idea. Money is just a, it's a form of trust it's, and it's just ones and zeros that are imaginary and, you know, in some, you know, chip somewhere, uh, which uh, of course will all be taken away by, by the, uh, North Koreans and Chinese at some point, <laughs> <laughs> turn the lights out and empty our bank accounts for fucking sure. That's yeah. happening. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, but I see it and it's, there's a real interesting way of seeing it like that. Like it's a, a way to, so okay, so there. Have you read the book, um, The Gift, uh, Douglas Hyde, I, I believe, or um, I no no, Hyde, no, no Hyde wrote it. I ha- I haven't read I have I haven't read it, 
but I have my my mom has told me. Yeah, it's it's great, and, and she I've even bought it for me, and it's sitting on the shelf. I it's this book that I I've read the first fifty pages fifty times, and I haven't you know been able to keep going through the whole thing yet. But there's a really interesting uh, story that he tells about uh, potlatch. I think it's pronounced, mm-hmm. uh, which is in the in the in the I guess Indonesian islands and and the Pacific islands. The, the tribes would bring gifts to other islands and you couldn't use that gift to profit. You would then would enjoy it and then pass it to another and it would go around another island, another community and go around. And if, you, for example, also if you gave someone a, a, a cow, they, you shouldn't use that gift as a profit making thing for, for yourself, like reproducing them and selling them. You know, uh, you want to then share it with the community. Anyway, this whole concept of of the gift of of whether it's art, creativity, uh, money is to keep it in circulation all the time because it performs a service. It performs a work uh, it, to the benefit of our of ourselves. And potlatch, I think, is the origin of the term we use potluck when we have yeah. potluck dinners. You're bringing gifts in for everyone to enjoy equally somehow. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I think that I, the funniest thing is I like so many people. So, um, I, I, in the past, we'll even call it decade. And since you brought up, you know, Korea and China since, and we'll, we'll bring Russia into the conversation since those, since those, um, since those countries have been affecting the mind of our country specifically, um, mostly brought on to scare us from the idea of something like pot latch. Um, communism has been thrown around and of course they've adopted the term communism. Um, the majority of the people that raise an issue with the term communism to me are like, say all oh, those commies or we're all turning into communists or socialists or whatever it is. The first question I ask them is, have you read the communist manifesto? Mm-hmm which is literally like the only written piece on, on comedy. There's, there's been, there's been conjecture, like, like mm-hmm. pieces written to challenge it. And the answer is unequivocally. No, always. Right. And it's literally a fucking, like a 50 page essay mm-hmm. that Marx wrote. And it's about a similar ideal, right? About how can we make, and it was so fucking flawed of just like anybody's ideal about how that could work would be, but it was an ideal similar to what you're talking about. It's like, how can production become something that everyone can share in, right? Right. Was the basis of that theory. And now what it's been, now what it's been um, evolved into, because now people call that Marxism, right? Right. Like his idea is now Marxism. It's no longer communism, um, which I'm sure he would be like, what the fuck? Um, and, and so, and so I do believe, so now we have a fear of this ideal because people of, you know, you know, communist quote unquote countries have decided that what it means really is that there's someone in control who's giving things to someone other in, human beings. Someone in drab clothing with a you know, military <laughs> hat or something like that, that it, only eats rice, you know. Exactly. But as I see it, like all of like, we can put socialism and communism and, and anarchism kind of all in the same. And I think that anarchism became like the street extreme form of this ideal, right? That like, like, communities 
can and should run themselves. Mm-hmm. And this, to me, could and I think would perform in the way that ecology does. I think that if if it was the community's responsibility to make sure that everyone was contributing, there would probably be some nature involved, which might be you know either exile or 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 some sort of. Uh, not so pretty handling mm. of situations, but nature would take hold to some extent, right? Like our this this code in our DNA would take over and, and, and tell us that we need to, to function that way, and we would take care of people who couldn't. Right. Um, I don't know that money can ever play a role in that. I mean, how could money play a role? You know, I don't know. What's your? Well, I think well, so money is not bad. I didn't. I don't think that money is bad. I think it should be used in good ways. Yeah. So I, I think that uh, our hang up with it though is I agree. Well, by the way, that money's not bad. No, and and but the thing is that there are people that are will uh, exploit uh, the general population as much as possible. You know. Yeah. Including banks, but uh, you know, with high interest rates, and mostly whatnot. banks. Yeah, or property. So, but they're all looking out for themselves, and they have investors. You know, they know how it all works. It's not necessarily bad. Activities we all make choices and decisions on our own, uh, but I, I I would like to see the concept of having money is not being the sole definition of wealth because wealth to me is you know a combination of uh, you know happiness and you know the things you need to be uh, comfortable and and productive in society physical health exactly even, right yeah that's wealth to me uh, so as long as that that this abstract idea of money. Uh, can get passed just like the potlatch uh, did in in the uh, earlier centuries with these tribes to do to do good things to do good things to our society. I mean, what do we need in life? We need a place to live, yeah, that's warm. We need uh, med- medicine, yeah. medical care, and food. What's your what's your what's your you? Here we go. You, <laughs> <laughs> You create it. You you create a system that that does not require medicine, right? Oh, you mean the the You're, aquaculture? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. aquaculture the is creating a a a system Ooh. that doesn't that doesn't require medicine. And I know, I know for sure. It's funny because um, bugs, specifically, you know, mosquitoes are a major issue in uh, really warm climates. And I remember, I forgot who it was I was talking. I was talking to somebody that was explaining that when they went deep in the jungle, there was no fear of dengue mm-hmm. because humans weren't around. Right. So we actually create a lot of disease. But my, 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 my thought of the situation is that there is a way also to create, but I think it's, I think that that comes, I think that the industrial revolution created a lot of that or dependence on, 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 on food, what what we're consuming, how what we're consuming is produced, having no micronutrients, right, and and only consuming macronutrients in our da- in our daily diet, and thinking that that's okay probably plays a role in it. Um, but from your perspective, do you think that, like, from an ecological standpoint, there would be a way where medicine would be unnecessary, where medicine would be our food? I think medicine could be our food and could be plants. Do you think that that's a, a, a you know an you're talking about like pharmaceutical approach yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah. to health. No, I'm talking about a non-pharmaceutical right. approach. Well, the, the, you initially just asked, you know, whether I use medications. I guess in my farming, yeah, like uh, uh, you know, any any kind of pharmaceutical to enhance their 
you know, productivity. I don't. I just use probiotics, just like you do here. Yeah. I I uh, ferment lactobacillus in uh, rice bran and feed it to the, the the shrimp, and that stimulates their immune system and also outcompetes the pathogenic bacteria that can can thrive in these systems. So all kinds of bacillus bacteria, yeasts, uh, is the approach for like a bioflock farm. Do you take medicine? No, I just eat, try to eat well. Uh, <laughs> how long is it? You mean like LSD and ayahuasca? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I guess I'm talking more about, because that's an interesting thing as well. Like everybody talks about the gut, my, everybody's like, you know, talking about gut microbiome and yeah. what that means. And really what that means is what you're talking about. It's, yeah. it's probiotics, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand that the medicine that we're generally prescribed when we get ill is actually antibiotics, which is the exact opposite of what you're, Right. propagating or I try to propagate in my own body. It's chemotherapy basically. You're yeah. you're you're killing everything in your in your gut to including the pathogen that's in there. Yeah. And then uh like when you get streptococcus infection, you take penicillin and it basically it kills the the uh the the disease, the pathogen, but it also takes out a lot of the the ones riding along in your gut. Yeah, and right. that's and, and this that's, is your field. This is like what you're <laughs> the expert in. But uh, no, but also you kind of are. So uh, I think that you know, and, and that's why it's dangerous in the food column. You know, that's why it's dangerous to use on animals, for example, right? Is because they're not creating uh, a micro a microbi a microbiome mm -hmm. that's healthy that can help them produce something that's then healthy for us to consume. And if we're consuming it on the back end, and a lot of those things are getting flushed into waterways, as mm -hmm. I'm sure you understand. Yep. And um and 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 into our food in many ways, um then we're just consuming essentially nutrient nutrient deplete uh products, no? Yeah, and I think probably the uh, uh of greater importance to that would be creating uh a basically a, a, a condition where disease re, or a, you know, resistant micro, microbes can flourish and like the strongest pathogens will, will survive and then create, like, you know, like overusing uh, antimicrobial medicines and whatever. Yeah. You have disease resistant or, you know, resistant uh, species out there or, or I'm jumbling all my words now. Sorry about this. <laughs> I'm thinking about seven different things at the same time, trying to. It happens to me all the time, yeah. especially in this kind of conversation. Think of the bell curve of uh, a certain bacterium, okay, that's pathogenic. Uh, and you you get some sort of um, chemical to kill, kill all of them. There's going to be some sort, like maybe 1% of them, or as Bernie Sanders would say, 1% of 1%. 99% whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> look, look, let me tell you about the one top 1%. That top 1% is going to survive and they're naturally disease resistant or uh, d resistant to whatever the application you're, you're putting on them. Yeah. And they're gonna, their genes are going to then spread. And then you're going to have this new um, variety of a pathogen that's going to go out and kill more animals or whatever they, they kill. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm like... I think just talking about the LSDs <laughs> looping me a little bit. <laughs> you're you're having a flashback. Yeah. No, we definitely we no we we're, we're walking down the same path. Yeah. I I, I uh, and it, yeah, and I think that that's like you know from we're talking about medicine as a whole, and I think that that's like the mistake 
for pharmaceutical medicine is like, they, they know that inherently, they know that they're going to kill this one thing and then, then it's going to evolve and be another thing. So like right. the, the job of someone in that field is just constantly chasing the 1% evolution, which will never end. And essentially what we're creating, you know, this is why the human and, and eco, like human and nature interaction is so interesting is because nature is just letting that shit go. Right. It's and it's just saying like, what the fuck, what happened, whatever happens, like, you know, fucking Brad and, 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 and Christina down the block are having a fucking issue. We're not going to get caught up in trying to solve it. Like let them sort it out. If they do, if they do, if do, if not, we'll remember them and we'll, we'll learn a way to, to evolve from that. Uh, and I think that our problem in general is trying to stop nature from happening instead of letting it happen. And I do believe that we're getting to a tipping point. This will be like a fucking, a boom. I do think that we're getting to a fucking tipping point where all that shit's going to end in flames. Hmm. <laughs> like this episode? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but like, well, how so? Like, what do you mean? Uh, you mean hum how? humankind? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I don't, well, listen, there's, there's two things. Um, I think it's no mystery to anyone who's listened to me talk before that Noam Chomsky is someone that I, I really respect. I, I like reading and listening to reading his books and listening to him speak. And um, he brings up two points that I think are the only, he, he says now, if you listen to him talk, there's only two things that we need to be worried about. And it's nuclear, mm -hmm. nuclear warfare and, and ecological collapse. I think that one of those two things is is going to happen. Well, ecological collapse is already happening, right? The nuclear thing I'm fucking scared shitless always about because I don't think people really recognize that like someone's thumb is on the is on the trigger and it could go off at any time. Um and there seem to be more and more triggers. Exactly. All the time. Exactly. Yeah, every year. And um and uh and um uh, ecologically I don't think that there's a way out at mass. I think that what's going, at least this is just my theory, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not a nihilist. This is just what I think. I think that we're going to see, and we already have started to see people moving out of, out of centralized living mm -hmm. and those who find a way to coexist with the natural world will survive at least as long as the planet will have us. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that there's going to be a, 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 a serious decline. I mean, we're, we're so fucking close with, I mean, water. So the craziest thing, and I'm sure that you know, and understand this is like, we know the ocean could be a key, right? Like if we focused on taking care of that specifically, there's definitely some keys there, but we know less about the ocean and care less about the ocean than we do about looking for a solution in outer space. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but I, if you look at the state of the world, of the soil, of, you know, even this place that we're in that, that, that claims to be very ecologically sound, we have a, a pool of, of, of biohazard running up and down the entire West coast of, of our state mm -hmm. that people don't want to address. You know what I mean? People right. don't want to address because going back to currency money, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I know specifically, um, my family's had a, a camp in, in South Hero, just a, a modest camp for like 40 years. And I 
don't remember a point where it was super clean. My mom does remembers when she can, like it was crystal clear. My mm-hmm. grandparents definitely do. Um, but as a kid, I remember fish kill, you know, always mm-hmm. coming up. And I, and I see people having these deep discussions about what the solution to the problem is. The solution to the, or the pro or actually trying to find out what the problem is. The problem in my mind, understanding a lot of what you've explained through agricultural inputs, mm-hmm. you know, phosphorus, nitrates, mm-hmm. et cetera, and antibiotics and excrement and waste on top of that salt on the roads in the wintertime that just helps, in my opinion, because I use salt for fermentation, it helps the process along. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to have those conversations because that's money, right? We don't want to have, we, we, we you know, the dairy industry is, has collapsed in this state to a point where we can't, we don't want to take a risk at possibly calling into question that that's the issue. And I really do think that is the issue. So in my mm-hmm. opinion, without some serious um, and abrupt change, we're headed for, you know, some sort of collapse environmentally. Yeah. And to add some more lugubriousness to this, uh, <laughs> you know, there's like uh, all the, the way we communicate now through these things, look, pointing to our, uh, our iPhones um, and the way that, you know, f- fakes are coming out and the, the, in, the need to be instantly informed about all the bad news that's out there. That's, that's all it is. I mean, yeah, we're distracting our, ourselves with bad news with shitty music and, you know, whatever else is out there. Uh, but there's also this AI issue coming uh, around. So it, it is, uh, it is uh, pretty scary to think about uh, how we can maintain uh, a population of what are we eight billion people or whatever we are now? Um, oh shit! I don't even know what the population of the world is. Do you know? I think it's. I should know this because I teach this, but uh, I always mix it up between seven and eight. But uh, the eight billion mark went across uh, when they announced it on the, on the news. I was in Montpelier, over at uh, Joe Buley's place, uh, and the freight train goes by, and on. Written in block letters, stenciled on these cars, so these these freight cars, was no hump. <laughs> and I thought that was really amazing. That I was listening to the radio, the NPR people are telling me, "Well, today's we're eight billion. Uh, and so I went to the class. I was teaching a class at Champlain College, and I said, "Okay, so here's the picture. Here's the message of how to control the population problem. Yeah, no hump." Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you get that? Yeah, oh, okay. absolutely, I do. Okay. I don't know that there. I don't know that. Uh, like, uh, I've thought a lot about this. Actually, I don't know that there is a. I don't really know that there is a population number wise issue. I think that there is a density of population issue. So I think that there's a lot of space mm-hmm. on the planet that could be occupied. But the problem is, again, going back to money or currency being what we're dependent upon and you know, computerization, industrialization, we need to be near everything that can supply us with our sustenance and our needs. I hear a lot of people have the conversation and a lot of people say that my ideal specifically of like being able to live off the land still, if you take care of it, being unattainable, I do believe that it's nearly impossible with the population we have now, but I do also believe that if we had set off on a different path, Mm 
we could have existed in a society or in a world where everyone had some space and everybody could grow. Mm-hmm. And then maybe currency never would have been, I mean, currency would have been commodity, right? Currency would have been, mm-hmm. what can you grow and what can I trade right. with you? Um, you know, your shrimp would be a currency instead of a piece of paper that I give you for that shrimp. So then you can go reproduce that shrimp with something that you buy from somebody else for producing. Right. Obviously I understand it's a, it's just a, I don't think like, I don't think that we would not have cell phones if a dollar didn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there would have been a way for us to evolve. Um, I, I I guess that's where I see the downfall. Hmm. You know, that's why, that's where I see we need, we need to, we need to simplify our minds Mm -hmm. from believing that we can master a problem. Otherwise we're looking at like a sterile future, right? Like the future, the future that money brings us to is like, the fucking Jetsons, mm-hmm. right? It's like, there is nothing green. We don't have to do anything yeah. anymore. Yeah. Our food comes in a pill. Yeah. A robot comes and cleans up our shit after us. Our thoughts are implanted with a microchip. Exactly. Uh, you know, what's the purpose? Well, it, it, it all, you know, this sounds really uh, cheesy, but you know, it has, it boils down to just love, like universal love. And that's, that's what we have to, to really focus on getting back to. Yeah. As Does, a as an earthling. <laughs> I was listening to uh, I was listening to a podcast today uh, and and Andrew Huberman have do you, have you heard of Andrew no, Huberman? No, I don't I don't know Andrew. He's a he's a um, he's a podcast, he's a scientist. Um and he's like talks a lot about human optimization. He was talking about himself um and and the issues that he faced when he was younger. He was going to school and he was you know uh, he he talks about in he was talking about how in, injustice infuriate, infuriates him and how that anger um, can uh, was holding him back from peace mm-hmm. um, and how that was something that through meditative practice he's mm-hmm. found to, to, to curb a little bit. But I find myself strongly averse to injustice mm-hmm. in a way that's similarly like keeps me from peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... I, 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 I look towards cultivation, cultivation of community, cultivation of food. But I also feel that someone with a platform should speak about injustice and, and kind of push for change. Yeah. You know, that'd be nice. Do you, do you, do you have a platform that you like, like, <laughs> do you have a soapbox? <laughs> no, I, I guess, you know, in, in your work, what's, well, you're a scientist, right? So science, so, so the scientific. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Not all the time. <laughs> the practice of science is essentially like coming up with a theory, testing the theory, yeah. and seeing if it works, right? Yeah. Um, in, in, in your field. So going back to the, the ocean and you, you had a, an oyster farm on the ocean mm-hmm. um, and, and you saw, I mean, money pushes regulation, right? So if we're talking about money and, and, and its role in things, um, yeah, and public safety in general. But do you find it? Do you find that the people that are making that are making the most headway are the people with the most money, or the people with 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 iron backs that that kind of push on the on the side? How do you how do you how do you how do you push that sort of regulation and 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 that sort of? Well, of course, I think having money behind you when you're in that phase of of beginning a whether it's a farm or any other business is going to give you an 
an advantage. It's a subsidy that, that you can afford to, to go through hard times and you can afford more labor. You can afford a lot of things that if you're just working hard all the time, you may not hit that, that critical, there's some line you know, that you, you need to pass before the money's just, um, you're really viable. You know, yeah. Um, so it's like anything else. If you have a lot of, if you well, farming is a different story because as the saying you've probably heard it. Uh, you know, how do how do you do you know how to make a small fortune in in farming? You start with a big fortune, a large fortune. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's it's a risky it's a risky business, and you have to be prepared for a lot of uh, cycles because nature is like we're seeing around the world right now the hurricane in California, the rainy season we've had here and the floods. Uh, I always plan for every one of every five years to just expect a disease to come in or, or bad ice to, you know, a, a winter, a bad winter where ice wipes everything out, scours the bottom. Uh, so you, you plan effectively to do that. But have, but to your question, I mean, having, having a big wallet going into it uh, certainly is an advantage. Is there a way, but is there a way, I mean, like, Let's say I've got, I guess the 30,000 foot question is like. So what's 30,000 feet? Why is it 30,000? I don't know. I don't know. It's fucking 40,000. The 40,000 foot view. Okay. Um, <laughs> like how does an oyster farm even start? Like how did the first, like how did the first oyster farm start? And how does an oyster farm start now? I understand like money is, I'm, I'm talking about fundamentally. So just quick sidebar. Yeah. I have, you know, we've got a piece of land in Greensboro. I could go find seeds, plant seeds. And, you know, if I'm comfortable living in the woods for a while, could turn that into a, a, a plant, right? Mm -hmm. I could turn that into plants that could, could bring me money and then I could buy other things, et cetera, et cetera. Oyster and fish farming is significantly different than that, correct? Like you have to have, there has to be, you, you couldn't just like be a person who found an oyster and create another oyster, I guess is. Yeah. It's more complicated. It's uh, <laughs> there are hatcheries that, that produce the, that are the reproductive centers of, of shellfish farms and most fish farms too, uh, where they produce the eggs and, and the, the, the juveniles will call them. And then they're, those are sold to farmers that then raise them uh, for however long it takes to get them to market. But it's not as simple as just growing. You have to have a market for them. And that's where the concept of knowing your community, knowing, for example, chefs in in my case uh, in like Boston, the Boston area, and and my the, the dealer I dealt with, knowing how to get rid of the oysters, how to get them to the marketplace. Who was my friend Skip at the time, and then when I came to Vermont, like knowing how to get them to places that were that would buy them on a regular basis. So there's a lot more than just growing them. So there's a, there's a side of it that's very much tied to the community that you're working with. Yeah. And so these days, what I, I have a booth over at the uh, Burlington Farmer's Market every Saturday. And it's just really wonderful because I meet a lot of people. I sell my product and everything. But I also, I'm, I'm learning about the other farmers throughout the state and what they're going through and how they're running their businesses. And we collaborate on, on things as well. We, yeah, and we also will trade our our products, and I'll have like half of the the food I need to eat that that week just by moving some some shrimp for some 
squash or beef or whatever. And yeah. uh, so it, it it's, um, you didn't ask this question. This is not the answer to your question. It's fine. But, uh, <laughs> but it's not just growing like your, your 40 acres that you're, you're going to develop into a productive, amazing place is, uh, it's it's really being part of the community that you're within. Yeah. And and I feel proud about what I do because I'm part of something bigger. Yeah. Here in Vermont, even Vermont's this little place, but Yeah, I have I have, you know, it is it is uh promising to see that that community Although there's 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 flawed parts of that system, mm-hmm. as there will always be, and and there's definitely um, some forms of greenwashing somewhere in the column of, of 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 that structure. I do think that Vermont, specifically in those farmers markets and the farmers around here, do reply, do rely on each other, and that's one of the, one of the values that I grew up with, with, and not just in Vermont, in the Northeast in general. I think that people exist this way. They always have. Maybe it's part that's coded in our east coast dna from when we came from Mm -hmm. europe and and you know did some really bad things but also (laughs) did a lot of really bad things but also you know kind of relied on each other to subside right um but you know i guess from fish farming i guess the 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 original question was it is something that's dependent on money mm-hmm. and there is ways that mo- it is a way that money can be used for good it is a way that a business can be created for good yeah and and most of you know you borrow the money from from sba or from, from the good guys or, you know, or whoever whoever's willing <laughs> to lend it to you or you or you go to the the folks that will invest in your business and those decisions are based on you know those models of business are you know, in individual choice, like how you want to, how you envision it working out. What got you out of that game? Got me out of what game? The oyster what? game. Oh, Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> like you, you said in the very beginning, uh, I need to get the fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was uh, in the middle of Duxbury Bay, which I loved. I loved what I was doing. And it was nearing, you know, 12, 13, 14 years of doing it. And I said, I got to get the fuck up there. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was a very specific day where there was a Northwest breeze coming in high pressure. And I just kept looking to the Northwest thinking, I I wonder what's happening up in, in, you know, Northern Vermont. And uh, so that I decided to start spending more time up up here. And the way to do that was to bring my business up here. So I, I, I I built a wholesale facility, got a a reefer van, which is not, not, you know, not marijuana. It's a, <laughs> it's a Cheech and Chong van. It's a uh, refrigerated van. And I uh, started coming up here. Um, first to Greensboro, yep. where uh, I befriended Todd Hardy and uh, Mateo Keeler and uh, Sean Hill and, and a bunch of other folks there. And sort of doing oyster events and then getting introduced to the chefs in the area. And then uh, then decided this is the, got to just move here yeah. again. I'd lived here before. Yeah, you know, and I wanted to come back. I'm glad I did. And when you sold the when you sold the oyster business, was it like to someone that you that you knew or? Yeah, the the the, the people that took it over uh, had a farm already in, on the bay, and and a very successful Boston based uh, shellfish um, wholesale business. And we remained friends, and we collaborated on some things. And uh, 
it went into good hands. And you still slang their oysters? Yeah. Yeah. They come up, uh, they're coming up and I, I go to, to foam on Saturdays and yeah. open a few. Sick. So what does the future look like? Future looks like when we find out for sure what's happening with the farm where I am right now, which is called Nordic Farms, also known as Earthkeep Farm Common, which is now for sale. Uh, if you got money. Yeah, please buy the farm, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> keep these people alive. Uh, what I what I want to do there, what I'm planning to do is to introduce um, trout to the farm as well. Cool. A few uh, More shrimp, but also uh, we'll grow some trout, perhaps salmon, but I think trout's a good next step. Salmon? Yeah. That would be an interesting one. Yeah, that's a little bit more involved, but I think uh, I think trout would be a good good pathway uh, to expanding the aquaculture business here. Yeah, and it's coming. I mean, aquaculture is growing by leaps and bounds right now. Uh, resource scarcity and and the cost of production, uh, harvesting wild, um, is now as as recirculating land based systems uh, are getting more. Uh, optimized, I guess, and more efficient, there's a, a, a big shift into creating seafood uh, on land. Yeah. And there's snakes in that grass as well. Yeah, there are. <laughs> I've come across a few. Yeah. Um, cool, man. Yeah. Well, we've been rapping for an hour and a half. I know. This is uh, great. Um, before we close this one out, and I would definitely have to do this again, because this is a great chat. Um, leave me with the wisdom that you found um, about life through your 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 caring of of waterways and ecosystems and all of your years. What's the what's the what's our purpose here and what's our what's the meaning of this all? <laughs> I think it goes back to, uh, really, it goes back to a few things we just discussed, and that's um, looking at. Uh, the social benefits and, and caring for other people and what we do. I think, you know, w w like what we need is a place to live, food, some medical care, and the rest is up to us to be happy. You know, we can, once we're, once we're there, we're happy people. And I think people that are happy and hopeful, and optimistic, uh, create the best societies. So I know I'm just a farmer, but that's how I see uh, my community here in Vermont and my community, my professions and, um, and just the world. Uh, I hate to see all this. I, I don't like opening up the news, the New York times every morning in bed or CNN and seeing like all this catastrophe and all this strife and people killing each other every day. And like, we should be interested in that as a form of entertainment. So I, I just like doing, like you, I, I believe, like your cre your creations are really amazing, and you're doing it for the benefit of your community and your the society here, and you're experimenting, and, and that's we're very similar in that way. That's what I'm doing as well. Yeah, mine might see, seem angry every once in a while, or maybe more, my, my my approach might seem a little bit angrier, but angrier, like is, in terms of your nihilistic uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> shade. Yeah. I mean, but it is, but it is the same. It is the same. You know yeah. what I really want to say, and maybe I just scream it. You're saying it softly. Is go fucking hug somebody go yeah. go you know if you're if you're giving somebody if you're giving something to somebody you should be giving it to them knowing that what you're giving them is is beneficial to their 
to their their DNA, you mm-hmm. know, and that they can carry that on to, to the future, whether it be food, whether it be shrimp, art, writing, art music, everything. talking on a microphone, yeah. whatever it is. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I appreciate you. And I think that that's why we connected, you know? Yeah. And so, um, uh, I'm super happy to have this conversation with you. Finally, we've got it off the ground and, and I appreciate you coming and, and talking to me, man. Yeah. I look forward to take two. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and how can people support you? Who, whoever's listening, uh, it's follow on Instagram website, read, where can we find yeah, you? Yeah, or come visit at the farmer's market and say hello. You know? All right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for saying that. Uh, I Everything's running well. There's a, you know, there's a, a transition coming up, but uh, just the support's always appreciated in terms of just, uh, just relationships, you know. Yeah. Whether it's a whether it's a business relationship or, or not, it doesn't matter. Sweet sound aquaculture. Go buy your sh- your your shrimp. If you're in Vermont, why are you buying it from anywhere else? It's the freshest shrimp in Vermont. Yeah. Freshest shrimp in Vermont. We got an advertisement, people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Thank you for right. thank you for joining Thanks, me. Thanks, Charles.